0: A native of Princeton, New Jersey, Susan Knight received a BA degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a master's of education degree from Harvard University. She was appointed interim president of the Emerald Necklace Conservancy's board uh, by the Emerald Necklace Conservancies. That's even a bigger uh, tongue twister than Susan Morris Hillis Curator. (laughs) Emerald necklace conservancy's board of directors this past December and assumed that position in January. And it's been in that role that she has been responsible for the day to day operations of the conservancy for the long range planning needed to ensure its fiscal health and for implementing the organization's mission to protect, restore and maintain the grounds and spaces that make up Boston's Emerald necklace but her professional affiliation with the Conservancy has by no means been limited to this year. Indeed, as the Conservancy's Director of Development since 2007, Ms. Knight has overseen all the organization's development initiatives, including meeting its annual fund goals, pursuing foundation grants and corporate underwriting, and, of course, cultivating donors. She coordinates efforts with the board of directors and works with, with volunteers on events such as the annual Party in the Park, a major fundraiser for the Justine Me Lift Fund to preserve the tree canopy in the Emerald Necklace. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Susan Knight. Thank you.
1: Thank you, David. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome you all here tonight. Uh, It's so wonderful to see all of you, and I especially want to begin and thank the Athenaeum for uh, this incredible co-hosting and providing this beautiful space for this wonderful lecture. Before I go too much further, I also want to thank uh, and recognize the Caroline Laughlin Fund, who has provided the generous seed funding for this Speak Out series. And uh, we have Harvard Bookstore as our sellers in the back and uh, the staff here who is tonight, uh, Ellen Arnstein, Jessica Welsh, Kate Acer, and John Smith, and of course Jeannie Knox, without whom none of this would have happened. The Conservancy has one of the shortest mission statements I've ever heard. Just nine words to restore and improve the emerald necklace for all. It's a simple statement for a Herculean task. Nine words focus uh, the conservancy's attention to the park system. Eleven hundred acres, just right out here, steps from uh, the front door here. Seven miles of this park that runs through the city of uh, uh, through the city to Franklin Park in Dorchester and make up the city's largest park, and half of its parkland. Its parkland mm-hmm. to some of the city's most spectacular trees, woodlands, waterways bridges, and play spaces. These nine words are the Conservancy's core, our foundation, and our motivation. In 2013, we launched the Olmsted Tree Society with the intent to care for the tree canopy in the park, quite literally the lungs of the city. And after surveying 7,000 trees and 200 acres of woodlands in, in Olmsted's park, we're on our way to spending over 2.1 million dollars to preserve the trees in the emerald necklace. This brings me to our Speak Out series, which is designed with the goal to inspire, connect, and engage all of you. We couldn't have a more uh, apt speaker to uh, get us to those goals tonight. Lauren Meyer is a landscape preservationist with a special interest, obviously, in the Olmsted firm. She's currently an editor of the papers of the Frederick Law Olmsted, and was the primary editor of the master list of design projects of the Olmsted firm from 1957 to 1979. I'm sorry, from 1857 to 1979. As the founding coordinator of the National Park Service's Historic Landscape Initiative, she developed groundbreaking national policy and technical assistance related to the treatment of historic landscapes. This was followed by over two decades of preservation work for the National Park S- Service and at Presley Associates. Meyer's award-winning preservation work has extended from coast to coast, uh, from working on diverse projects ranging from the Angel Island Immigration Station in San Francisco to the Woodlawn Cemetery in Bronx, and of course my favorite, the restoration of Olmsted's own home grounds at Fairstead here in Brookline. In addition to the final volume of the Olmsted paper, she's currently working with Ethan Carr and Rolf Diamond on a study of the role of the Olmsted firm in shaping the national park system. It, she's had, of course, included many uh, numerous awards, and uh, the most recent of which she's received is the J.B. Jackson Book Prize uh, for the Foundation of Landscape Studies, Frederick Law Olmsted: Plans and Views of Public Parks. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Lauren Meyer.
2: Thank you, Susan and David, and uh, thank you all for coming here on a great day to celebrate parks. Today, I will share with you some images of Frederick Law Olmsted's most important design concepts for civic park projects from New York to Yosemite as illustrated in this volume of the Olmsted Papers. Many people in this room know far more about the individual park histories than I, as well as the work of individual firm members. So I hope you will speak up um, during the discussion and you all know who you are, so, <laughs> so don't be shy. Wrong button. There
1: we go.
2: This work is the 11th volume of a 12 volume series devoted to the writings of Frederick Law Olmsted. Charles Beveridge is a series editor, and this volume marks the first of two volumes we are working on that present illustrative materials to visually describe Olmsted's design concepts. Frederick Law Olmsted is widely recognized as the founder of the professional practice of landscape architecture in the United States. And his firm grew over time to include his stepson John Charles Olmsted, son Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. and many, many others such as Warren Manning and Charles Elliott who had significant design careers in their own right. Over a period of about 130 years, the, film, the firm consulted on approximately 6,000 design projects nationwide and abroad. But the focus of the Olmsted papers is the ideas of its founder, Frederick Law Olmsted Sr., as expressed in his written work. Born in Hartford, Connecticut in 1826, Olmsted had a diverse upbringing and undertook many professions before finding his calling well into his 40s. This included time spent at experimental agriculture at his farm on Staten Island and travels through England where he visited some of the great 18th and 19th century uh, English landscapes such as Birkenhead Park designed by Joseph Paxton in 1844. Among his most significant professional forays included extensive travel through the South, writing for Putnam's Monthly, and later the newly minted periodical, The Nation. During the Civil War, he served as General Secretary of the US Sanitary Commission, now the American Red Cross, where he used his interest in applied science, health, and social reform. These experiences would greatly inform his design ideals and commitment to a just, healthy, and civil society. But it is Olmsted's innovations in developing America's urban parks and park systems that is the subject of the most recent volume of the Olmsted Papers. As many of you know, Olmsted's design career began in New York. In 1844, landscape designer, horticulturist, and writer Andrew Jackson Downing began to advocate for a central park for New York City in response to rapidly expanding population and crowded conditions in some parts of the city. By 1857, the stage had been set with a site selected and a design competition proposed for the new park. Olmsted was initially hired as a by the administrators to direct clearing the selected site in preparation for construction of the new park. Following Downing's untimely death in 1852, his then design partner, Calvert Vaux, invited Olmsted to join him in developing an entry for the competition. Olmsted and Vaux submitted the winning entry titled Greensward in April, 1858, following the competition rules that required the plan to be done at one inch equals 100 feet. So the drawing measured some 12 feet in size. Vox designed a vast number of bridges and Olmsted, drawing on his experience in England, laid out a complex plan with walks and drives, rustic picturesque features and areas of Greensward open grass and informal planting of trees. Following the competition, Olmsted assumed the role as architect in chief and later superintendent to oversee the management and administration and initial phase of construction of the park, which at times um, included as many as 4,000 workers. Perhaps one of the most important elements of the design is its circulation system, often called a separation of ways, where bridges and elevation are used to physically and visually separate different uses in the park. Here we see a detailed cross-section drawing for bridge E over the transverse road, the oval bridge over a bridle path, and a view of the wide carriage roads. Olmsted's approach to separating different modes of travel such as carriage roads, bridle paths, bike paths, and pedestrian walks and paths, has helped many of these 19th century parks transition into the the introduction of the combustion engine in the 20th century, also known as the automobile. The mall or promenade provided a gathering place for concerts and other entertainment While much of the design of the park features curvilinear elements and a more naturalistic style, Olmsted recognized that a symmetrical arrangement of trees and a grand promenade would be an essential feature in in a metropolitan park. But it did not dominate the park and was enclosed with informal plantings and irregular terrain so that its formality is only apparent when you're inside the combines of the mall itself. In addition, the terminal feature of the mall was not a monument, but rather the lake and hillside of the ramble. Swampy conditions in the pre-part landscape were dredged and flooded to create several water bodies that provided scenic and recreational features. Olmsted had experimented with new technology to manufacture and install drains at his Staten Island farm, and he brought that knowledge to implement a thorough, what he called a thorough drainage system for Central Park. Here, the informal pond near 59th Street, and in the center and right, we see the Central Park Lake, loaded, located just north of the mall designed for boating and skating, and surrounded by lush plantings. Olmsted had a predisposition for the character of lush and profuse planting, and following his travels through Panama in 1863, en route to California, he wrote about the instinctive approach to the tropical character of the planting in the Central Park Island. Large areas of open lawn with informally arranged trees provided open passages of scenery which typify the green sward concept. Considerable blasting and filling was required to create large areas of open green space such as the playground near 59th Street and the Sheep Meadow which was created to meet the competition requirement for a parade ground. Olmsted conceived of this parade ground as a great country green or open common, a place where children may run about and play until they are tired in nobody's way and without danger of being run over or injured if they fall. Vox and Olmsted cited the dairy building at the top of a south-facing meadow to provide easy access for convalescents and sickly children. Its two principal structures, the dairy Building, which provided fresh milk and the rustic Kinderberg structure, were intended to help counteract the effects of cholera in phantom, which ravaged many city tenements in the summer months. <clears throat> Olmsted was a close friend of Charles Loring Brace, founder of the Children's Aid Society, and several early Olmsted parks include dairies specifically intended to address the problem of infant cholera in cities. Olmsted would later work on the Leakin-Watts Orphan Asylum in Yonkers beginning in 1889. The ramble is a quintessential example of Olmsted's use of the picturesque style. Using rustic features and the planting of shrubs, vines, and ground cover, to create the qualities of variety, intricacy and delicacy. I'm gonna move on now to Riverside Park. Riverside Park between 72nd Street and 129th Street gave Olmsted the opportunity to create a more extensive promenade than what he had created at Central Park. In his design of 1873, he reduced the curves and steep sections of the old Riverside Avenue and arranged the park and avenue so that pedestrians would have an unobstructed view of the Hudson. Also in 1873, Olmsted drew up a preliminary plan with Calvert Fox for Morningside Park, but that plan was never carried out. After practicing separately for several years, Olmsted and Fox collaborated again in 1887 with a revised plan that focused on improvements to the site's views and vegetation. It included two paths, one along the eastern base of the cliff and another close to the retaining wall of Morningside Avenue, both designed for access by visitors in wheelchairs. In the southern end, a large meadow replaced what had originally been conceived of as a water feature. Beginning in 1861, plans for Prospect Park in Brooklyn had been initiated by the city. While Olmstead was in California, and I'm going to talk about that at the very end, Calvert Fox worked to convince city officials to expand the park site. And in 1865, the Brooklyn Park commissioners selected Olmsted and Vox to prepare a plan for an enlarged 650 acre site. The long meadow extending for a mile from the main park entrance is one of the finest realizations of the pastoral style in Olmsted's parks. He noted, it should be a ground which invites, encourages, and facilitates movement. Its topographical conditions, such as make movement a pleasure, such as offer inducements in variety on one side and the other for easy movement, first by one promise of pleasure and then by another, yet all of simple character. These carefully modulated meadows would provide the beneficence of nature and help address the stress of urban life. <clears throat> in the ravine, Olmsted and Vox connected two major areas of the park, the long meadow and the lake, by cutting through a moraine that separated them. They constructed a valley providing water pumped from a deep well. Rustic stone features and dense plantings achieved the effect of richness and profusion that characterized Olmsted's work in the picturesque style. And like the ramble in Central Park and the wilderness in Franklin Park, Olmsted intended that this wild scenery would also provide a therapeutic effect by directly connecting park users to the life force of nature. The low water provided a narrow enclosed passageway to the broader section of the lake. The large refectory and boathouse originally proposed by Olmsted and Vox at the western end of low water, was never constructed. But landing shelters on the shore of the lake encouraged a variety of boating activities. And the current boathouse, which many of you may know, uh, constructed in 1904, post-dates uh, Olmsted's work on the park. The Nethermead and the, was an open meadow with a gently flowing stream, for the children's ground, Olmsted and Vox created a charming park space in a steep-sided dell near the Long Meadow, which came to be called the Vale of Kashmir. I don't know, I don't know the why of that. Lush planting, subtropical in appearance, surrounded a small pool. The whole feature was nestled out of sight of the main carriage drive, yet convenient to the main entrance and had an open beach at one end for children to launch boats. Olmsted and Vox designed Fort Greene, or what is now Washington Park in 1867, to serve as a place for ceremonial gatherings. It included a crypt for Revolutionary War soldiers who had perished in the British prisons nearby. The 1870 plan for Tompkins Park features a garden along the outside of the park, unshaded by trees, which may be very bright and elegant, with flowering shrubs and plants and perfect turf. In their report to the Brooklyn Park Commissioner, Olmsted and Vox set out a new form of urban boulevard they called a parkway. The key element was a roadway reserved for private carriages and separated from other transportation routes by rows of trees. Two parkways were constructed following this concept, Eastern Park, Eastern Parkway and Ocean Parkway running five miles south to Coney Island. Olmsted also proposed other parkways to destinations such as Fort Hamilton. Between 1868 and 1874, Olmstead and Vox designed their first comprehensive park and parkway system for Buffalo, New York. The exhibit plan submitted for the 1876 Centennial in Philadelphia shows the overall park system and included watercolor renderings of each of the component parks. Olmstead was con- particularly proud of this system as it integrated into his parkway concept the radial street pattern previously planned by Joseph Ellicott in 1804 of this plan Olmsted called buffalo the best planned city in the country if not the world the buffalo <laughs> the buffalo parkways were his first to physically connect two parks with their general width of 200 feet. That includes uh, divided circulation routes and generous uh, planted areas in between. The Buffalo Parkways rival their Parisian counterparts. Delaware Park was designed exclusively for boating and rambling through the landscape with venues for team sports and crowds relegated to other parks, the front and the parade. These views of the lake show its mature vegetation and boating activities. Situated at the point where Lake Erie begins its headlong course down the Niagara River to the falls, the site of the front had a unique view over Lake Erie. Olmsted noted, a river effect such as as can be seen, I believe, nowhere. It's, you know, the 19th century language. (laughs) A certain quivering of the surface and rare tone of color, the result of the crowding upward of the lake waters as they enter the deep portal of the Niagara. The front was designed as the waterside entrance to the city from the Erie Canal and Lake Erie. It provided for music performances and other gatherings, as well as team sports. The parade featured a large field for military reviews, a dance hall designed by Calvert Vox, and a large children's play area with swings, trapeze, seesaws, um, and the like. Olmsted's plan for a lakeshore park on the south side of Buffalo was never fully realized, but instead the city designated two sites for alternate parks, South Park and Cazenovia Park, located farther inland. Cazenovia was equipped with a boathouse and rowboats and the water level could be lowered so the lake would freeze in the winter for skating. By 1868, Olmsted and Vox had started work on the planned community of Riverside, Illinois and we're going to cover that in the final volume, Um, in Illinois. And in 1869, they were commissioned to design two avenues leading to the 1,000-acre South Park, and the following year were invited to design the park itself. The Inland Park, or Upper Division, and counter. that's the Upper Division, Um, eventually called uh, Washington Park, took advantage of the flatness of the site to provide a great 100-acre meadow. The lower division, later called Jackson Park, had a mile of lakefront beach and a 165-acre lagoon that provided uh, sheltered water for boating. However, <laughs> the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893 presented a major change to the area of Jackson Park and its connecting avenue um, and provided Olmsted an opportunity to undertake landscape improvements to the lagoon he and Vox had proposed in 1871. And again, we're going to cover that, um World's Columbian in greater detail in the final volume. Olmsted's enhancement of the lagoon and the wooded island would provide a contrast and relief to the neoclassical formality of the court of honor. He brought in many railroad cars of plants from the countryside and produced a lush display of plantings, an unrestrained and informal presentation of natural scenery as a foil to the highly enriched, refined and delicate gardening of other parts of the fairground. Following the exposition, Olmstead and John Charles Olmsted undertook the redesign of Jackson Park, removing the foundations of the great temporary exhibit buildings and creating a simplified version of the 1871 Lagoon. He intended that Jackson Park be the finest domestic boating park In the country. And you can sort of see outlined in red where the um, World's Columbian Exposition buildings had been. In the post exposition period, photographs show that the original concept for an open green and mirror or lake had been both fully realized and maintained in Washington Park. And also following the exposition, Olmsted and his partners sought to construct a central canal that would connect the mere in Washington Park with the lagoon in Jackson Park. Imagine that long, skinny, you know, connector between the two parks. Um, They also provided an alternative plan that would treat this central feature as a panel of turf grass, and that is what was ultimately connected. The 1871 plan for South Park included three parkways, now Martin Luther King Drive, Drexel Boulevard, shown at the left, and Garfield Boulevard, leading to Washington Park that would facilitate rapid movement of large numbers of visitors with straight rows of clean, trunked trees. I bet you thought I'd never get there. (laughs) The park system Olmsted designed in Boston and Brookline, Massachusetts between 1876 and his retirement in 1895 was his most extensive and the one on which he labored for the greatest amount of time, even relocating his home and office to Brookline in 1883. The term Emerald Necklace is not Olmstead's, but rather, I believe, a carryover from a newspaper article from the early 20th century, and I challenge anyone in the audience to come up with the source for that that name. Olmstead's early commissions for Commonwealth Avenue began in, in 1880, but in 1885, he began an extension along the line of Beacon Street, running nearly three miles to Chestnut Hill Reservoir and Park this was a major element of the parkway system he designed for the Boston region. Both sections of the new avenue were 220 feet wide and contained separate a separate parkway for carriages. In 1876, Boston had adopted a plan for the Back Bay Fens that featured carefully tended turf and gardens. Instead, Olmsted proposed a plan inspired by the tidal marshes of coastal Massachusetts. At the same time, he proposed a large basin to address sanitation and periodic flooding and and, uh, placed a tide gate between the basin and the Charles River to reduce the tidal fluctuation to one foot. Once the scenic characteristics, drainage and sanitation issues were addressed, Olmsted turned to the circulation system, adding carriage drives around the boundary along with walking and bridle paths. Olmsted's plan for the Back Bay Fens involved connecting the Charles River to two streams, Stony Brook and the Money River. Olmsted had long wished to create an example of an urban stream that was reserved for the purpose of scenery and public recreation rather than neglected and filled in. In Boston, this also required work in the Fens to eliminate the tidal salt wa- wash, pardon me, the tidal saltwater water infiltration from the Charles River into the Muddy River. Although I think, I'm sure someone can correct me, that wasn't, entirely accomplished until the construction of the Charles River Dam around uh, 1912. Um, Olmsted radically altered the shape of the muddy river, straightening and deepening its course to enhance floodwater storage and grading the banks to provide a platform for walks and bridal trails. Once this was accomplished, he created plans for a succession of mast planting and opening of views between paths and streams. Construction and after-construction photographs show the detail of engineering de- design and the character of the planted landscape approximately 15 years after construction. And I think these are some of the very best examples of sort of during construction and after construction in uh, the Olmsted Collection. I'm just going to run through those. This is a view downstream from the Longwood Bridge in 1892 and after construction in uh, 1907 and a view upstream from the Longwood Bridge, and the same view in 1907. Shortly before his death, the next park area upstream was named in Olmstead's honor. In the section that became Leverett Pond, he replaced the brackish swamp with a freshwater pond bordered by paths and beaches. Upstream a series of small natural history pools and and a babbling brook connected towards pond. Jamaica Pond, the primary feature of Jamaica Park, existed when the Boston Park system was planned. Olmsted's design proposed limited changes to the configuration of the pond. His primary concern was provision for the parkway on the east side with other areas of the park designed to provide access to and experience of the landscape. The section of the parkway between Jamaica Pond and Franklin Park, running past the Arnold Arboretum, represented Olmsted's true vision for a parkway. A series of separated travel ways, 200 feet in width with the widest, the arborway, reserved for private carriages and equestrians. The parallel roads, each separated by a row of trees, provided sidewalks and a road for carts and wagons. Charles Fragg Sargent approached Olmsted in 1874 with the idea of making the newly established Arnold Arboretum part of the Boston Park system. Working together, they were able to secure cooperation between the city and Harvard College. Sargent retained control over the scientific arrangement of plantings and, open, and Olmsted prepared plans for roads and drives the city would build and maintain. And we're going to delve into this also in greater detail in the next volume. The roughly 500-acre site of Franklin Park provided varied terrain well-suited for a large park. Olmsted created two plans the first in 1885 and the second in 1891, which responded to pressure for a water feature, adding a small brook and pond. 335 acres were described as a country park, designed with the intent of simplicity of treatment and experience of landscape, nothing decorative. Turf would be kept short by sheep rather than lawnmowers. Native plants were preferred and quote, cockney garden toys are to be eschewed, he wrote. (laughs) The cove-like Dale, also part of the country park, had a special charm that was enhanced by by a vine-covered boulder arch at its entrance and provided open lawns for temporary sports, such as lawn tennis. Olmsted used small features as well as large features to develop a different architectural vocabulary from the one he had employed working with Fox in New York. In the rocky New England landscape, he developed a bold, rustic style that rejected both decoration and elegance in favor of nature and place. And... <clears throat> Influenced throughout his work in Boston by H.H. Richardson, whose use of what he called architectural stone is evident in many of their collaborative undertakings, such as the projects for the Ames family in Northeastern. With its suburb view, Schoolmaster Hill was the site of bays and arbors for picnicking. Olsted included a rustic shelter in the ensemble, inspired by thatched roofed cottages he had seen in England. The rocky woods of the wilderness were easily transformed into a picturesque landscape experience that contrasted with the open areas of the country park. Olmsted designed an extensive circulation system for carriages and paths and designed the remarkable stonework of the hundred steps on the steep side of the the area. On a relatively level part of the, in the northern part of the park, Olmsted placed a 40-acre area for team sports and gatherings, visually separated from the country park. A raised carriage concourse, 800 feet in length, served as a viewing platform. On this terrace, he designed the Playstead Overlook structure that served as a refectory, a shelter from inclement weather, and a locker room for athletes. It was designed to be completely subordinate to the landscape. Olmstead planned a formal promenade, music court, and playground extending from the playstead south to Refectory Hill. At 2,500 feet in length, it was twice the size of the Central Park Mall. Joined to the greeting by a short drive was a large refectory that, while formal in design, did include an open-air pergola for patrons with views of the country park. Uh, Moving to Charles Bank. An embankment along the Charles River contained a waterside promenade and boat rental facilities. Here, Olmsted created the first comprehensive set of gymnastic facilities for men, women, boys, and girls to be offered free of charge in a public park. He was particularly satisfied that the facilities attracted residents from the tenements in the North End. The main design element of the 1894 plan for Wood Island Park in East Boston was a drive along the outer shore of the island with views of Boston Harbor. Phil was added to make fields for baseball, cricket, lacrosse, tennis, and other, and other sports. The 1881 plan for Charlestown Heights provided a view over the Mystic River, a large playground and tree-lined plaza on Bunker Hill Street. The most striking feature of the small park was the boulder rockwork along the path that descended the steep bluff to Medford Street along the river. In 1891, Olmsted added uh, gymnastic grounds for men and women and a longer waterfront carriage drive so that this became the largest neighborhood recreation ground designed by FLO in the Boston region. Now Rochester. Simplicity of treatment characterized Olmsted's plan for the 500-acre Genesee Valley Park. Much of the park design consisted of a large meadow and a circuit carriage drive. Paths along the river shore made the scenery accessible to visitors. Most of the land for Highland Park was given to the city of Rochester by the L. Elwanger Weng- and Berry Nursery and a considerable amount of the plant stock remained on the site when the park was created. Olmsted supported the idea of creating an arboretum of shrubs that would not obstruct the view across the city um, towards Lake Ontario. The Children's Pavilion, designed by Shepley, Rutan and Coolidge, provided a structure with views and open to cool breezes that could be used by city children to help combat the problem of cholera in Phantom, as in the dairy at Central Park. A significant component of Olmstead's 1893 plan for Seneca Park was the tree-lined carriage drive that ran along both sides of the Genesee River Gorge serving as parkways and containing wide concourses with views of the river and gorge. And here we see views of the gorge and a uh, scene along the main drive. Now Louisville. In 1891, Olmstead began planning a park and parkway system for Louisville. Local park advocates had selected three sites, and Olmsted approved the selections. He particularly praised the quality of the scenery in the Cherokee Park site and considered it the most suitable. He planned a circuit drive through the park that provided a rich and varied experience of the site from Behringer Hill to Beargrass Creek. Um, Olmsted proposed to treat the forested hill of Iroquois Park as a scenic reservation, much in the fashion he had treated Mount Royal in Montreal, which is coming up soon. (laughs) He planned a carriage drive that would gradually ascend the small mountain, circle the summit, and descend by another route. Four carriage concourses were set at special vista points. Located on a bluff overlooking the Ohio River, Shawnee Park was the only Louisville park with a considerable extent of level ground. So it became a suitable location for team sports and public gatherings. In his report of 1891, Olmsted described his concept for the park as a broad and tranquil meadow space with shadows of great spreading trees slanting across them and offering areas of turf that could be inexpensively kept in a suitable condition for lawn games. Olmsted was able to plan a 150 foot wide parkway between Iroquois Park and Third Street. It included a 40 foot wide central route for carriages lined on each side with two rows of trees in turf strips 28 feet wide. Outside of these, he placed a bicycle path on one side and a bridle path on the other. While FLO was not successful in planning a complete system of parkways for Louisville, John Charles played a major role in the design of Eastern Parkway, connecting Southern Parkway with Cherokee Park. Olmsted began work on Mont Royal in 1874 in Quebec. Quebec. Here he proposed to enhance the character and mountain feeling of the site and provide a circulation system that made possible a continuous landscape experience as visitors traveled to the top of the mountain, rather than a series of isolated views. Olmsted proposed to plant the lower section with deciduous trees and shrubs and provide areas of open turf the steep and rugged areas above would have evergreen trees to block the wind and vegetation native to this northern climate. As in many other parks, Olmsted was concerned about public access to scenery for the infirm, and the plan for Mount Royal includes a navigable path to the summit that was graded to allow access for individuals in wheelchairs. Work on the lower section of, Mount Royal, of the Mount Royal carriage drive was not completed as he had planned. However, much of the upper section was finally constructed, so his vision of a sequential landscape experience was at least partially realized. His 1881 report is one of his most valuable writings on the art of landscape architecture and the design of parks. In 1882, Olmsted began work to plan uh, Belle Isle Park, located two miles uh, from downtown Detroit in a narrow area between Lake Huron and Lake Erie. The flat site with poor drainage was the complete opposite of Mount Royal. He proposed a straight boulevard with a canal on each side. Pumps would periodically drain the canals and drainage tiles would direct water out of the adjacent meadows and forest. Olmsted proposed to cluster all of the park structures at one end of the island and that cleared the way for a real landscape experience in the rest of the park. On the shoreline, he designed a remarkable two-story shingle style structure that would serve as a wharf for steamboats, a shelter for beachgoers, and a viewing platform for athletic events. Much of the Belle Isle Park plan was never realized But but a single-story version of the gallery structure pictured on the right was built. And that upper photograph is a photograph of of the model um, that the firm built. Niagara was the scenic reservation Olmsted was most involved in and for the longest period of time. As early as 1869, Olmsted was concerned about the condition of the scenery at the falls when he gathered a group of Buffalo Park commissioners to discuss creation of a reservation that would would reverse the commercialization and industrialization of the area. As with Yosemite, Olmsted found that a number of of scenic qualities made up the special scenic wonder of Niagara. Niagara ranging from the grand and awesome falls to the finer details of the smaller landscape features. He noted, when we stand at any point near the edge of the falls and look up the course of the stream, the flowing waters of the rapids constitute the skyline. The crest of the breakers, the leaping and rushing of the waters are still seen against the clouds as they are seen in the ocean when the ship from which we look is in the trough of the sea. It is impossible to resist the effect on the imagination. Those words come from an 1880 description Olmsted wrote for the New York State survey on the condition of scenery of the falls. And here you can see, um, this is sort of, you know, what he was talking about in his concern about commercialization and industrialization. He was particularly impressed by the Rapids above the Falls and the character of Goat Island between the American and Canadian Rapids. By 1883, the New York State Legislature had authorized creation of the reservation and in 1887, Olmsted and Vox were commissioned to draw up a plan. One of the greatest challenges was creating a system of paths and drives that would enable crowds to experience the landscape without destroying the scenery. Olmsted's administrative skills were called upon for a very different purpose following his work on Central Park. He traveled to California to direct, direct the gold mining operation at the Mariposa Estate near Yosemite Valley when in 1864, the federal government ceded the Mariposa Big Tree Grove to the state of California as a public park. The governor appointed Olmstead as chairman of the commission and, and superintendent, and he was charged with conducting a survey of the valley and preparation of a report providing the rationale for creating reservations of natural beauty for public enjoyment. Olmsted argued for the importance of circulation and access to natural scenery and the appreciation of the varied landscape character from its towering cliffs and spectacular cascades to the unique combination of pastoral and picturesque elements. He wrote, The union of the deepest sublimity with the deepest beauty of nature, not in one feature or another, not in one part or one scene or another, not in any landscape that can be framed by itself, but all around, and wherever the visitor goes, constitute the Yosemite, the greatest glory of nature. 150 years after this landmark report for Yosemite, Olmsted's vision is being celebrated as is the centennial of the National Park Service, guided by legislation penned by Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., shown here in that with that large happy group. Oops, got ahead of myself. This is large. There's there's Olmsted Jr. Um, <clears throat> uh, surrounded by members of the Palos Verdes, uh California team. Olmsted's vision for public parks and scenic reservations was carried into the 20th century by his successors, his son Frederick Law Jr., stepson John Charles, and other members of the landscape architectural practice based in Brookline. In addition to FLO Jr.'s role in developing the enabling legislation and serving as an advisor and collaborator to the National Park Service, the firm also completed many planning studies and design projects for national parks and national forests, including extensive work at Acadia National Park, Yosemite, the Everglades, Grand Canyon, Sequoia National Forest, the Rocky Mountains, and a large body of federal work in the nation's capital, and many historic sites that are now part of the national park system. From 1915 to around 1935, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. also directed an important study for the California State Park System Park Commission that recommended state park sites and included design and planning studies for many sites from northern to southern California. The later firm expanded their practice in areas where Olmsted Sr., had already recommended parks, such as in Hartford, Connecticut, as well as new work in areas of the country that had not benefited as much from his influence. And that includes parks in Seattle and Spokane, Washington, Denver, Colorado, and Essex County, New Jersey. Of the firm's approximately 6,000 job numbers, over 1,000 represent parks, parkways, recreation areas, and scenic reservations nationwide throughout the firm's history. I'd like to conclude by uh, paraphrasing Charles Beveridge's reflections on uh, Olmstead's uh, park legacy. The overall purpose of Olmsted's parks went well beyond the psychological or physical benefits to visitors or even the communal bonding that concerts or other gatherings promoted. Even greater than the realization of the ideal of a beneficial institution created for and by the people, acting within the community of each city was the benefit that the park provided for the mutual service of members of the community. This was a quality that he valued greatly the intent to serve the needs of other members of a community to the fullest extent possible. Olmsted felt that the restoration of energy to serve the public good, to contribute one's bit to the welfare of the whole, was the most valuable accomplishment of his public public parks. Our volume, Plans and Views, includes more parks and park proposals and images than I am able to share with you today. These works include plans, drawings, fine art paintings, historic photographs, stereographs, and other visual materials from a broad list of museums, archives, and libraries. Without these, including many here in the Boston area, particularly the Olmsted National Historic Site, The comprehensive study of this vast legacy would not be possible. And to you all, we are most grateful. Thank you.